rejected Jesus. Then in verse 31, it doesn't say the, Jerus uh, the people of Jerusalem. It says the people. So not just the Jerusalemites, but everybody there at the feast. Remember, they're at this feast and this is what Jesus was preaching. Everybody, the Jerusalemites, everyone else that was visiting from out of Jerusalem. Verse 32, the Pharisees and the chief priests. And if you read again in verse 32, the officers, the Roman guards, every single person there rejected Jesus' claim of being God in flesh who has come to save us. Now, I think this passage is, is really interesting because, one, it informs those of you here who are Christians of how to handle rejection. But this passage is even more interesting because not only does it tell the Christian how to handle rejection, it also engages those of you who are here who may still be exploring the gospel, who may still be asking, what is Christianity all about? What is the Bible all about? Um, it, it engages with you and, and, it, and it helps you in a reasonable way explain how um, uh, what Jesus claims to be God in flesh may not be as unreasonable as it may first apparently seem. So it tells a Christian how to handle rejection and it engages those who are still exploring the gospel of how this claim might not be as unreasonable as it may seem. But before we begin, in order to understand this passage well, in order to really get what Jesus is saying, why he responded the way he did, how he responded, we must first understand the verse before this passage. So our passage starts in verse what? 25, right? So let's take a look at verse 24. It's not printed out in your liturgies, but you can open your Bibles, and I think it'll be up front in the PowerPoint as well. Let's understand verse 24 in order for us to get what this passage is about. Jesus says in verse 24, as people were rejecting him, Jesus says, do not judge by appearance but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. We won't understand what Jesus is trying to say, how to handle rejection, unless we first see what he meant in verse 24. Jesus is saying this in verse 24. Just because something isn't physically apparent, just because we can't touch it, can't smell it, can't grab it, can't see it, just because it's not immediately apparent, it does not necessarily mean it's not real. If you judge what's real and what's not real merely by what's apparent or not apparent, you would be judging with wrong judgment, not with right judgment. He's saying here, and this might disturb our postmodern ears, he's saying that there is truth behind what is apparent, referring to himself. Remember the context? He, the, the Pharisees were denying Jesus' claims of being God. That can't be true. That claim can't be true. We can't see, smell, touch, grab the proof. And if we can't do that, then it, then it can't be true. And Jesus is saying, your judging is just by mere appearance. Don't do that too quickly. Now, I know how this sounds, especially to our postmodern ears in this day and age, to say that things that do not have physical evidence might be real sounds kind of silly. It sounds a little dumb. It sounds unreasonable and foolish. And I, I totally get that. But think about it. We actually believe this all the time. We believe in things that cannot be touched and seen as, and held as real all the time. I've said this in my sermon before, but I think it applies to us today. We all here believe, at least I hope, that human beings, all human beings, have equal rights and value. I hope you believe that. If you don't, then we can talk after this and, you know, we'll figure that out. 
But in general, you, we all believe human beings have equal rights and equal value. But you guys realize there, there really is no tangible proof for that. The proof to verify, verify your claim that all human beings have equal rights, you can't physically touch that proof. I mean, you can physically see the human being and the person, but you can't, you can't physically see or touch or smell or hold the proof that says all human beings have equal rights, but yet, yet you believe it's real. You see? We do this all the time. We never really think about it this way, but if you say that all human beings have equal rights, no matter their age, their financial situation, their skin color, their race, their ethnicity, if you say they all have equal rights, that's a faith statement. Think about it. There's no apparent, t tangible, touchable, seeable, smellable evidence that says that, but yet you know it to be true. Example, if this baby is sick, this baby is sick, it's not productive, it doesn't contribute to society, but yet for some reason we would say this sick baby have the same basic human rights and worth and value as a healthy, productive, contributing 30-year-old businessman. See, what you're doing there is you're judging something not just by mere appearance. You have judged well. We do this all the time. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 24. He's saying, guys, here's my claim. I am God in flesh. And just because you can't physically touch, see, or smell the evidence, don't so quickly disqualify it as untrue. Okay, now, we're on the same page? Okay, with that understanding, let's go to our passage today. I have three points. One, the most popular type of rejection. Two, the way we engage it with our words. Three, the way we engage it with our life. The most popular type of rejection, the way we engage it with our words, the way we engage it with our life. All right, pray with me, and then we'll begin in our passage. Father, we trust you and your spirit now as we open your word, and we know that salvation can't be found by reasoning. And we're fully dependent that you would come into our hearts and that you would reveal to us what is true, what might not apparently at first seem apparent. And we are dependent on this, Father, no matter how well this passage is taught, no matter how well the sound systems may be, unless your spirit comes, it will be of no effect. Be with us, our minds, our hearts, and let those affect our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, the most popular type of rejection. So, so let's start with first seeing exactly the reason why these people had a hard time receiving Jesus' claims as being God in flesh. Look at verse 25 to 26 with me. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. They're rebuking the authorities. They're saying, look at this guy. He's speaking heresy. And nobody's doing anything? Can it be that the authorities really is saying, uh, really know that this is the Christ? He's saying, well, what, why isn't the authorities doing anything? Do they think his claims are true? Do they actually believe this is God in flesh? To them, it wasn't only silly. To them back then, that was heresy. That's why he was crucified. And what was their reasoning? Why couldn't they believe it to be true? Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. He's saying this can't be true. This human being can't be God because he's a human being. We know where he comes from. In other words, we know his origin. 
He came out of the womb of Mary. He was born as a human. He has an earthly hometown. He has earthly origins. Like, like we, we can see his mom. She's right there. I don't know if she's right there or not, but they could, they could, they could see her. I could see the, their home. I could see his home, hometown. We can physically touch where he, we see the person. How can this person claim to be God when we know where he comes from? That's not how the Messiah is supposed to appear, they said. When the Messiah comes, he's supposed to like come out of nowhere. That's what they said. We're not supposed to know his origins. He's not supposed to be a fleshly human being. Not born as a baby. That's illogical. That's unscientific. That's unreasonable. He's clearly, apparently, a human being. So cannot be God. Now isn't this interesting? Is this not the same reason why many people reject Jesus today? He can't be God if he's human. That's why I call this point the most popular type of rejection, because it's not new. It's the same struggle people have had for two millennia. For over 2,000 years, people rejected Jesus for the same reason. But yet, this is what the Bible clearly claims to be true. You don't have to go so far. Just go to the same book. Look at how the book of John starts in chapter 1. Uh, you don't have to go there. It's on the PowerPoint. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the truth. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. The Word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, you see there at the end, only Son from the Father. So in the beginning was the Word, God the Son. He was with God, God the Father. And the Word, God the Son, who is God, truly God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I realize this touches on the subject of the Trinity, but allow us to just handle one 2,000-year-old question at a time, okay? So let's just talk about the incarnation right now. That's where the passage is kind of focusing on too. So, so even, even back then, people rejected Jesus' claims. This is not new today. Many religions mock it. Uh, uh, Non-religious people think it's ridiculous. This isn't a new type of rejection, and I totally can empathize with all that. I, I, I get it. So in this next part of the passage, we'll see how Jesus responds to this question, why he responds that way, and where can we get the same kind of calmness and collectedness to do so. Okay, and by seeing his response, I hope Christians today will see how we are also called to respond with our words, but then in point three, we'll talk about how to respond with our lives. All right, point number two, the way we engage it with our words. See, what usually happens when, 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 when if you're a Christian, and you hear something like this, what usually happens is that you, we become overly defensive. And we try to over-argue people with it, thinking that our reasoning can force them to receive Christ. And you know, you, know, you, know, you know Christians like that. We all know Christians like that. Sometimes we might be Christians like that. I don't know. But usually what happens is you, you end up freaking people out. <laughs> you offend people. And, and some, some of us probably have maybe made that mistake. I know I have. Now, to use reason to talk to people isn't bad, but oftentimes we use it in a wrong way. See, this point, we'll see why Jesus, in his response, he doesn't seem to have this pressure to respond in a way that uses reason to, like, attack the crowd or, like, force them into a corner. He just simply restated the truth. Let's look at it. Verse 28, verse 29. 
This was Jesus' response. You, you can't be God. We, we see your flesh. We see your mom. We know where you come from. You can't be God. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. You can see my parents. You know I've birthed out of Mary. You can visit my hometown. Yes. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. He pretty much just said, it is because it is. <laughs> and it's kind of like, really, is that it? Well, we'll get to that later. But for now, let's get on the same page. When Jesus said, I was sent by him, I was sent by God, he's not saying that I'm a human being that was sent as like a prophet by God. Remember, the whole premise of the book of John, as mentioned in chapter 1, is what? In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. So he's not just saying, I'm a human being that's being sent by God. He's reiterating the claim of the book of John, saying, I am I'm God in flesh and I'm dwelling among you right now. So I'm sent by God. I, I am sent by God the Father as God the Son to come and live among you and be as flesh. So in verse 25, the people said, you cannot be God. We, we know where you come from. You're human. Humans cannot be God at the same time. Jesus answered by simply stating the truth. He didn't water it down. He didn't feel the pressure to use reasons to like attack them and disrespect them into a corner. He simply said, although you know where I come from, you know my parents, you know my hometown, you know whom I was birthed out of, I am God in flesh. See, there's a, there's a calmness. There's a collectedness about his defense of the faith. He did not use reason to attack people into a corner. But why not? Why not use reason to corner people? Would, is there no use for reason at all? There is. But let me first talk about why Jesus didn't feel the pressure to use reason to corner people, to back people into a corner. Because if you look at John chapter 3, verse 5, we, we know whom Jesus believes salvation comes from. I'll read it out loud. It's on the PowerPoint. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is what he said two chapters, or, or I'm sorry, four chapters before our passage today. He said, unless you're born of the Spirit, you're not, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. He knows that human reason cannot make people believe. The Bible says it is the work of the Spirit. This is important, friends, because if you think that human reason can somehow make people believe, you're going to end up overbearing people. You're going to end up being forceful and insensitive. You're going to use reason to attack them into a corner. There's a funny exercise that I've heard a seminary professor do it might be silly, but it's kind of funny to me. So what he did was he, um, for a class, uh, he, he brought some of his, I think it was about uh, missions or something, I don't know, he, he brought some of his students to come out to a graveyard. And he said, choose a grave. So all the students came and chose a grave. And then he said, I want you to share the gospel to this dead, dead person. And then students are like, oh my gosh, all right. Uh, there's probably a point to this. I'll just go along with it to get my grade, right? So they did it and they started sharing the gospel. Guess what happened? Nothing. And the professor said, you know what? I, think, I don't think you're sharing the gospel well enough. How about you talk about the gospel through this? Maybe that's what, that's what this person needs. So they talked about the gospel again, and guess what happens? Nothing happened. And then he said, you know what? I know what it is. It's not that you're not explaining it good enough. It's that you're not screaming it loud enough. How about you scream it really, really loud? Let's see what happens. So they started shouting just preaching the gospel to this grave. Guess what happened? Nothing. He's trying to make a point. Friends, what does the Bible say we are in our sin? 
Does it say that we're sick in our sin? It says we're dead in our sin. No matter how well somebody reiterates the gospel to you, no matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how long you've been at church, unless the Spirit reveals it to you, it will not happen. And Jesus knew that. We're dead in our sin. My reasoning cannot make this person believe. Only the Spirit can. So he, he didn't use reasoning to force them and kind of attack them to believing. He just reiterated the truth. Someone's faith is the work of the Spirit. If you believe that, you want to attack and disrespect people. Okay, now, is that, is that all there is to it? Is that how we're supposed to respond? So if somebody comes to you on the street and says, how can Jesus be God and man at the same time? Just say, well, because it is. Like, is that, is that all there is to responding? No, of course not. That's also insensitive. <laughs> That's also borderline disrespectful, okay? So how do we respond? Can we use reason at all? Is there any use for reason in the Christian faith? Yes, of course, there is. But here's how. Let me, let me, let me say it, repeat it, then I'll explain it, Okay? This is how we use reason in defending the faith. Instead of using reason to force people into believing, use it to engage their reason for disbelief. I'll repeat it. It's okay if you didn't get it first time. Instead of, instead of using reason to force people into believing, use it to engage the reasons for their disbelief. What do I mean? When somebody asks you a question, like the people did here in verse 25, I don't believe that Jesus is God. God can't be man. What you want to do is separate their disbelief with the reason of their disbelief. What is the disbelief? The dis disbelief is that God cannot be man at the same time. That's the disbelief, right? Great. Now ask the question, why is it they disbelieve that? Well, as we've said, this question, this, this type of rejection, this type of disbelief has, has been around for 2,000 years. So in different time periods, in a different uh, uh, cultures, the reason for disbelief might be different every time. But since we live in Indonesia, let's take the reason of disbelief that we probably will most often hear when we say God is man at the same time. And usually the reason for disbelief in, uh, in 2017 Jakarta, Indonesia is this. The reason that they disbelieve God can be man at the same time is this. If God became man, that would subtract or that would take away from his godness, right? If God became flesh, that would make him less than God. That's usually the reason you'll hear here for their disbelief. God is all glorious. God is all powerful. If he put on flesh, that means he would be less glorious. That would mean he would be less majestic, less powerful. So one reason of disbelief, at least that we find in Indonesia in this time and age, is that many would say, if God becomes man, puts on flesh, he'd be less than God. Now, at this point, you have successfully differentiated between the person's disbelief and the reason for their disbelief. And here, friends, is where Christian reasoning should come in play. Not to change their disbelief, that's impossible, that's the work of the Spirit, but to address the reason of their disbelief. So you might want to say something like this. Actually, if it's okay with you, may I offer a reasonable way of how God can put on flesh without losing any of his godness, without losing any of his majesty, without losing any of his glory, without losing any of his power. So you're addressing the reason for disbelief at this point. You see? Tell them that. If they say yes, this analogy I've used before, and I think I'll, sh I'll share again, 
uh, no analogy is perfect, okay? But this is, I think, one of the ones that comes closest to it. How can God become man without losing any of his godness? In America, there's a TV show. If you've lived there before, visited before, or have cable here, you might have seen it. It's called Undercover Boss. Have you seen this show? Undercover Boss. Okay. In this show, the owner of Fortune 500 companies, so like really big companies, right? They take on the identity as a worker. So, so most employees in this big of a company would have never met their boss personally, right? So the boss would put on worker's clothes. He would uh, actually register as a worker. He would legally get hired as a worker. And he would actually walk around, live life, and work around the workers. He truly was a worker. And the purpose of the show is to like see which, which staff was like talking smack about the boss, you know, so they can make a whole drama out of it, and which, which staff was being underappreciated you know, and deserves more. Now, in this situation, though the boss takes on the nature of his staff, it doesn't mean that he gave up the ownership of his company, did it? His status, his majesty, his glory, his power, although veiled by the appearance of staff, unseen, his, his authority and status and majesty as owner of the company remains attached. He still holds majority shares. He still has most votes in the boardroom. He still has legal authority over the company. When there's a big decision, it's still his signature that needs to be signed to legally pass that decision. He didn't lose any of his bossness. So before he became a worker, he was the boss of a company. While he was a worker, he was still a boss of a company. And after he's done being a worker, he's still the boss of a company. He didn't lose his bossness. But... But why? Just follow along with me here, because this will affect our hearts by point three, I hope. Why? How can, he, how can his bossness not be affected? How is a boss able to do this? Well, here's the key, and, and also to an extent, a helpful way of how to understand the incarnation, how God became man. How can the boss become staff without losing any of his bossness? Because when the boss humbled himself to, and become staff and, and took on the nature and identity as a staff, Here's the key word. He willingly added that identity unto himself. Here's a key word. It's what's called a humilia humiliation by addition, not a humiliation by subtraction. Here's an example. If you here own a company, if you don't, just imagine you do, okay? If, if you own a company, imagine you own a company, and all of a sudden on a weekend, you decided you wanted to work as a servant in a um, in, in a, uh, a homeless shelter. You want to put on servant's clothes, you want to register as a servant. So you do that, you go and you register and you serve as a servant in a homeless shelter. Does it mean that while you serve in a homeless shelter, you have to give up being a boss of your company? Not necessarily. It doesn't mean you have to change or lose the identity of being a boss. Because you've humbled yourself, not by losing your bossness, you've humbled yourself by taking on something, a different identity. It was on top of your identity as a boss, not by the loss of that identity. Now, this is how the Bible talks about when God became flesh in Christ, when he was born as a man. This is what the Bible is talking about. He didn't lose his identity as God. It, he did so without subtracting from any of his godness. Why? Because when God became man in Christ, it was a humiliation by addition. He added onto himself the nature of man. He didn't lose any of his godness. He was still fully and truly God. He still held full authority over creation, still a sovereign, majestic, glorious, because of humiliation by addition, not subtraction. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. 
I think it's summarized here. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. It was an add-on. It was a take on the form of a servant, not losing of this. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So see, there is a way that God can be flesh without losing any of his godness. You have just addressed the reason of their disbelief without attacking them and forcing them to believe. That's up to the spirit. That's not your job. Your job is just to reason with them for their disbelief. And I know there's something that, that sounds kind of funny to our ears right now. When we say God added something, un, something unto himself, that sounds funny. We'll address that in the third point, okay? But for now, just, just know that what reasoning can do, it, it can make people consider and, and linger there a little longer. They won't dismiss something that might not be as immediately apparent as untrue or unreal. Reason with them. Make them linger then. They're longer. See, if you view reason this way, one, you'll make them consider Jesus' claims as plausible uh, and not just immediately reject it just because it's not apparently real or true to them in the beginning. Two, you won't feel the pressure to bombard them with arguments. You're going to be able to be kind and loving and calm and collected and caring like Jesus was when he spoke to them. Why? Because you know that it's not your job to make them believe. You can't. Three, you will not be disrespectful or dismissive to the intellect of people who are seeking. People who are seeking are very, very intelligent people. I had a conversation yesterday with a very intellectual atheist. You won't disrespect them. You won't just say, you won't just say um, uh, why is Jesus God? Because he is. <laughs> That's very disrespectful. Be humble. You weren't saved because you're smarter than anyone else. You were saved because God through his spirit had mercy on you. If you view reason this way, not as a tool to make people believe, to force them to believe, but as a tool to engage the reasons of their disbelief, it will cause you to be humble, patient, engaging, kind, unattacking, not overbearing with people. And friends, if you haven't been paying attention to this because you think this is stuff just for pastors and theologians, this stuff isn't relevant for the everyday Christian that isn't working at church, you're mistaken. God commands all of us to do this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This isn't just my job. This isn't just Gray's job. If you claim to be, those, to be a person who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, this is your job description. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you, not to attack them, but to engage the reason of their disbelief. Okay, now let's move on to our last point. Let's see that the way we, we answer people's rejections about Jesus and claims about being God. If we just do that with our words, uh, it won't affect much. We have to do that with our lives as well. Let, let's look at point three, the way we engage it with our life. And this is our last point. Let's go back to the passage. We see here after Jesus responded in verse 28, 29, uh, the Pharisees and the people that wanted, there wanted to arrest Jesus, right? Why? Because Jesus' claim of being God in flesh were, was offensive to them. 
Here's what Jesus was saying. Jesus is saying, look, you guys look really religious. You guys look really spiritual. You guys have all the churchy words and the Sunday school answers you have. But none of that can save you. None of your church going. None of your Sunday school answers. None of your Bible study going. None of your Bible reading. Those are great things. But none of that, Pharisees, can save you. Only I can. That got them angry. Because Jesus is calling them helpless. You need me. You need God to come down in flesh to save you. That is your only hope. Not your religiosity. Not your morality. Not the good points you have stored up for yourself. They got mad. What did they do? In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then what happened? Jesus said something weird. Verse 33, he said, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. I'll be with you a little longer. What does this mean? Where, where are you going to go, Jesus? They thought Jesus was talking about going to the Greeks. The Greeks is just a way to say the non-Jews, so out of Jerusalem. Okay? And, and look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? <laughs> this is what they're saying. They're saying if Jesus went to the Greeks... Outside of Jerusalem, they weren't going to bother looking for him. You know why? Because back then, the Jews fancied themselves more holy than non-Jews. The Jews, the Greeks in the eyes of the Jews were dirty, sinful, less than. And you know, because they thought the Greeks were dirty, sinful, less than, you know what they did? They didn't engage them. They didn't care about them. Because they felt superior. They felt better than. They felt self-righteous. And if this is how we live our lives, no matter how good your answers are, people, the world, will not be drawn to Jesus. You've received mercy. You've received grace. You have no room to boast. I have no room to boast. You had a need. You had a lack. And God put on flesh to redeem you, to meet that need, to meet that lack now earlier i said when i was talking about the incarnation some of us here might have had a hard time thinking about god adding something unto himself remember and, and i said that god in god in his humiliation didn't subtract from his godness but god in his humiliation added unto himself a different nature and when we hear that some might think this god doesn't need anything he's perfect He's all glorious. He's all majestic. He doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need anything to be added unto himself. Why would God add something unto himself if he doesn't need it, if he wasn't lacking anything? And you know what? You're absolutely right. You are. He doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to add unto him anything else. Um, but friends, what is the gospel? Hear this. What is the good news? The good news is that God did not add on flesh because he lacked something. Why did he add on flesh? Because we lacked something. He put on flesh not because he needed to. He put on flesh because you needed it. It wasn't to cover up his lack. It was to cover up our lack. What, what did you think Jesus meant in verse 33? Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. What is he talking about? Where is he going? Why will he no longer be with them? 
because he was soon to be crucified. In this text, the officials didn't end up arresting Jesus, but later in John and the other Gospels, Jesus was arrested. One day, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, will give himself up to man and be crucified. And then they'll see. Then they'll see the true reason of why God added unto himself a human nature. Not just because he can. Not because he lacked something and he needed something else to be more perfect. He did it because you needed something because I needed something. He did it because we had a lack. What is the gospel? What is the good news? The good news is your creator inserting himself into creation, adding unto himself the nature of man, a thing he could do without subtracting from his godness, a thing he must do in order to save you. And he did. And then he became our substitute as man, he lived the life we should have lived but yet failed to live. And he died on the cross the death we deserve because of our sins. He didn't do it for him. <laughs> he did it because you needed it. Because I did. So let, let's, let's summarize. Let's see how this applies to Christians and also you here that may still be exploring the gospel, exploring Christianity. If you're a Christian here, Find rest. As you respond to these questions, stay faithful to what the Bible claims, as Jesus did, and don't overbear people and use reason to attack them in the corners. You can't reason people into believing. That's the work of the Spirit. Instead, figure out the reason for their disbelief and engage that. Now, don't get me wrong. The purpose of this text isn't to say you must have every answer to every reason of disbelief. It's not. I don't. That's, that's hard. But it's to remind us, one, of who Jesus is, of how loved you are, and how this reality humbles us. You, you no longer now, um, um, you, know, you now no longer decide whom to love and whom to engage and whom to be patient to and whom to care for by what is apparent. That's gone. It doesn't matter what people's positions are. It doesn't matter what their uh, financial situation is. It doesn't matter what their skin color is, Pribumi, Chinese, Indonesians, Americans. It doesn't matter. You don't, you don't judge things by what's apparent anymore because you've been given new life by the Spirit. Now when you see somebody, you see we're all sinners and all need the mercy of Christ. And, and you don't pick and choose who you engage with like the people in this text did. Don't. Don't do that. No more. Two, it tells us how to respond to rejection. Calmly, collectively, your strength is not what's going to redeem people. Your reasoning is not what's going to save people. Only the Spirit can. So like Jesus, hold firm to the truth. Don't waver. But at the same time, use reason reasonably to address people's reason for disbelief. Okay. You're loved. Your, your, your identity isn't found in whether or not you win arguments. It's settled in Christ. Now engage people lovingly, caringly. And if you're here today and you're still exploring Christianity, you're still figuring out what the gospel is all about, two things. One, now you know how Christians are meant to act. So if you come across a rude Christian who tries to bash your head in with verses and arguments, rebuke them. Tell them this, hey man, your Bible says faith is the work of the Spirit. You're not supposed to be acting like this. Tell them that. So chill out. And then challenge them to reason. It'll be good for them. 
But two, I hope through this sermon, you will consider the Christian faith not as unreasonable, just because some things may not be immediately apparent. If you don't believe something the Bible claims, Jesus can't be God and man at the same time. The Bible can't be the word of God if it's written by man. God can't be Trinitarian in nature or whatever else it may be. I encourage you to take a step deeper and ask, okay, I don't believe that, but why don't I? What is the reason for my disbelief? Because there, there are ways in which those reasons of disbelief can be engaged with. Now, will those answers save you? No. Will they make you believe? No, no reasoning can. That's what the Bible says. But at least you can see that it's the, the Christian faith is not as unreasonable as it may apparently first at seem. And perhaps, just perhaps, it might make you consider. It might make you really consider. What if all this is true? What if God really did become man and took on flesh and died for you in your place? What if this isn't just some archaic fable somebody told 2,000 years ago? What if the creator of the universe, what if the creator of the universe really did want you so badly, he'd rather die on a cross than spend eternity without you? What if that's true? What does that say about who you are? What would that say about your true value? How could that change your life? Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let's pray. Father, your word has spoken, and through your spirit we pray that you cause this word to not merely be something that has affected our heads, not merely be something that changes and manipulates our behavior, but Father, we pray that these words become real and true, and they would move from our heads to our hearts, which is so often the longest road people travel. And I pray that you would give us the mercy if we are uh, here and we have received you, we have trusted in the gospel and Christ as a redeemer, as he, as you who have come down to die for us, then Lord, I pray that you remind us of where our value lies, remind us of the sure anchor we just sung about earlier in our song. It's not in winning arguments, it's not in any of these things, it's in the fact that you loved us so much, you came and pursued us. And Lord, if we're still exploring Christianity here, I pray that you uh, will continue to be gracious to us. And Lord, that you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd, be, um, uh, you'd reveal these truths through your spirit. Because as we have just said, no matter how well a passage is preached, it will not be effective unless you come down. We beg you now for your mercy and your glory and your majesty. And that we would see your grace and your truth through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.